हेलो सो फाइनली आर फ्रीक्वेंसी मैच्ड एंड यू आर ट्यून्ड इनटू ट्यून इनटू स्नेहा फ्रॉम टुडे आई विल बी रीडिंग फॉर यू द लेजेंडरी बुक इंटीग्रेशन ऑफ द स्टेट्स बाय वीपी मेनन एंड इट इज गोना बी एन एक्साइटिंग वन शैल वी स्टार्ट ओके द फर्स्ट चैप्टर सेटिंग द स्टेज पेज 1 इंडिया इज वन ज्योग्राफिकल एंटिटी yet throughout her long and checkered history she never achieved political homogeneity from the earliest times spasmodic attempts were made to bring about her consolidation a pioneering effect in this direction was made by the magadhan kings bimbisara and ajatshatru in the 6th century bc but it was not till about 3 centuries later that under the mauryas and particularly ashoka a large portion of india came under the sway of one emperor the mauryan empire lasted only for about 100 years and after its disruption the country again lapsed into numerous kingdoms nearly 5 centuries later chandragupta and his more illustrious son samudragupta brought the major part of the country under their suzerainty and harsha in the 7th century was able to make himself the undisputed master of north india these and later attempts at political consolidation failed again and again for one chief reason the empires were held together almost entirely by the personality and might of the emperor the whole edifice crumbled when a line of supermen came to an end even under these emperors a diversity of autonomous states constituted the mosaic of an empire emperor claimed suzerainty over these rulers who offered allegiance to him subordinated their foreign policy to his diplomatic moves usually served him in war and offered him tribute but who in other respects retained their sovereignty Whenever the authority of emperor weakened the subordinate rulers asserted their independence there was a perpetual struggle for supremacy mutual jealousies and conflicts made the country an easy prey to any organized invasion the muslims were thus able to vanquish the hindu kingdoms in north india the first muslim conquest was in the 8th century when the arabs under muhammad ibn qasim conquered sindh But it was the conquest of the Punjab by Mahmud of Ghazni in the 11th century that opened the gates of India to the Muslim invaders from the northwest. Muslim rule in the North India was founded in AD 1206 when Qutbuddin Aybak proclaimed himself the Sultan of Delhi. From this date to 1526, the year of the downfall of the Sultanate Delhi had as many as 5 Muslim dynasties. and 33 sultans these sultans attempted from time to time to extend their empire and alauddin khilji was the first of these muslim rulers to conquer practically the whole of india the moguls appeared on the scene in 1526 when babur defeated the last sultan of delhi in the battle of panipat He also defeated the powerful Rajput Confederacy in the decisive battle of Kanwa and so laid the foundation of the Mughal Empire. During the time of his grandson Akbar, the Mughals reached the meridian of their glory. Neither the sultans nor the Mughals did away with the system of subordinate rulers. In the very condition of things, it was impossible for them to have done so. it was akbar who laid down the basic principles governing the relationship between these rulers and the emperor 
he asserted his authority over them in the matter of succession and assumed to himself the power to depose any ruler for disloyalty. The sovereignty and authority of the emperor was unquestionable, subject to which, however, the subordinate rulers were as much despots in their respective domains as their master. The passing away of Akbar's great grandson Aurangzeb in 1707 was the signal for the breakup of the Mughal Empire. His protracted and costly campaigns in the Deccan for conquest of the Muslim kingdoms of Bijapur and Golconda and for the subjugation of the Marathas has denuded his empire of much of its resources. Moreover, his short-sighted policy of religious intolerance had alienated the allegiance of the Hindus. Once his strong hand was removed, the Mughal viceroys as well as the subordinate rulers began to assert their independence and political and military adventurers started hacking at the crumbling facade of the empire. Within the incredibly short period of 20 years from Aurangzeb's death, Mughal power had faded into an insubstantial pageant and the country had fallen into a condition of masterless disorder. It must be emphasized that not even in the palmiest days of the Hindu and Mughal empires did the entire country come under one political umbrella. No greater achievement can be credited to the British than that they brought about India's enduring political consolidation. But for this accomplishment and the rise of national consciousness in its wake, the government of free India could hardly have taken the final step of bringing about the peaceful integration of the princely states. Today, for the first time in the country's history, the writ of a single central government runs from Kailas to Kanyakumari, from Kathiawar to Kamrup, Kamrup the old name of Assam. To appreciate the full significance of this achievement, it is necessary to review in broad outline how the British established themselves and built up the framework of princely India. After the disintegration of the Mughal Empire, the only power which seemed likely to step into the breach was the Marathas. Shivaji had laid the foundation of a mighty kingdom, but the pioneer of a resurgent Hindu empire had left no competent successor. After Shivaji's death, the Peshwas gradually took control. In the beginning, they showed promise of becoming the rallying force of the great Maratha confederacy, but theirs was the story of the Hindu and Mughal empires over again. Intrigue and corruption at the Peshwas' court and perpetual wars between the Sindhya and the Holkar disrupted Maratha unity. The Maratha armies were tax collectors by force and showed no discrimination between the Hindu and the Muslim. The imposition of Chauth and Sardesh Mukhi in conquered areas and the collection of these exactions by the Mulkgiri forces brought upon them the sullen hatred of the people. Into this arena of confusion and unrest entered the British and the French. Both had come to India for trade. The British had come earlier and had started factories in several coastal towns in the name of East India Company. This company, the greatest mercantile corporation of the world has ever seen, had several advantages over its French rival and, in the bid for supremacy, finally succeeded in ousting the French from the scene. The British Empire in India presents the curious phenomena of having been built by the agents of the company in India at any rate during the initial stages, notwithstanding express directions to the contrary from their principles.
The only interest of the court of directors was in trade and commerce and they frowned upon wars which ate into their profits. Treaties entered into with Indian states in the early stages aimed at no more than maintenance of the company's privileged positions in trade against its rivals. It was in the process of protecting its commercial stake in the country that Clive actually laid the foundations of the British Empire in India. At first, the East India Company's agents in India were responsible only to the court of directors who derived their powers from the charters given to them by the crown. So long as the company was interested merely in trade, these charters were enough. But when it became a territorial power, some control by parliament became necessary. In Lord North's Regulating Act of 1773, the parliament for the first time asserted its authority and control over the company's activities, both in India and in England. The act converted the Governor-in-Council in Bengal into a Governor-General in Council. The Governor-General had no overriding powers over his council. The control of the Governor-General in Council over the presidencies of Bombay and Madras were confined to the making of peace and war. In the words of Montagu Chelmsford report, the act created a Governor-General who was powerless before his own council and an executive that was powerless before a Supreme Court, itself immune from all the responsibility for the peace and welfare of the country, a system that was made workable only by the genius and fortitude of one great man. That was Warren Hastings, the first Governor-General. He continued the work of Clive and, indeed, left the British possessions in India much larger and more secure than he found them. The Regulating Act was repealed by Pitt's India Act of 1784. A body was set up, known as the Board of Control, to supervise the activities of the Court of Directors. It made the control of the Governor-General over the Presidency's governments effective. Later, by a Supplementary Act in 1786, the Governor-General was given powers to overrule his council in special cases. He was also permitted to hold the office of Commander-in-Chief in addition to his position as Governor-General. It was this threefold augmentation of the powers of the Governor-General that was responsible for the success which attended the efforts of the Marquess of Wellesley, the Marquess of Hastings and the Lord Dalhousie in India. As Lord Dalhousie piquantly put it, the Governor-General is unlike any other ministers under heaven. He is the beginning, middle and end of all. Fourteen years after the passing of Pitt's Act, Wellesley came to India as Governor-General. He was given the strictest injunctions to keep the peace, not to meddle with Indian rulers and to husband the depleted resources of the country. He paid scant attention to these injunctions. Wellesley was convinced when he came to India and saw the state of affairs here that the British must become the one paramount power in the country. Towards this end, he worked for the next seven years. Apart from his military achievements, his greatest contribution was the institution of a policy of subsidiary alliance with the Indian rulers. Under this system, the state accepting subsidiary alliance was to make no wars and to carry on no negotiations with any other state without the company's knowledge and consent. The bigger states were to maintain armies commanded by British officers for the preservation of the public peace and the rulers were to cede certain territories for the upkeep of these forces. 
the small estates were to pay a tribute to the company. In return, the company was to protect them, one and all, against external aggression and internal rebellion. A British resident was also installed in every state that accepted the subsidiary alliance. The system of subsidiary alliance was Trojan horse tactics in empire building. It gave the company a stabilizing authority vis-a-vis the states and because of this, the governor-general was present by proxy in every state that accepted it. Well-trained bodies of troops were posted in strategic and key positions without any cost to the company. The fidelity of the rulers who accepted the system was thus assured. When Wellesley was recalled in 1805, the British dominion had expanded considerably. He had successfully overcome Tipu, whose defeat and death in 1799 removed a major threat to the British Empire. He practically eliminated the French influence in India. Besides, he brought many states under subsidiary alliance, the notable ones being Hyderabad, Travancore, Mysore, Baroda and Gwalior. In successfully implementing this policy, Wellesley was fortunate to have gifted colleagues like John Malcolm, Charles Metcalfe and Mont Stewart. Besides his illustrious brother, Arthur Wellesley and later the Duke of Wellington. For the next eight years, the company was primarily concerned with looking after its trade and replenishing its depleted resources. Then came the Marcus of Hastings as the Governor-General in 1813. He interrupted policy of Warren Hastings, Arid Wellesley was pushed by him to its logical conclusion. The successive campaigns in which he overcame Nepal, crushed the Pindaris and finally broke the Maratha power carried the spread of the British dominion over North and Central India to stage which it was only left for Lord Dalhousie a quarter of a century to complete. Simultaneously, he resumed Wellesley's policy by extending the company's supremacy and protection over almost all the Indian states. By the time he left the country in 1823, the British Empire in India had been formed and its map in essentials drawn. Every state in India outside the Punjab and Sindh was under the company's control. His official seal no longer acknowledged the Governor-General as the servant of the Mughal Empire and with the fiction of the Mughal government ended. The British Empire of India stood in its place. Subsequent years saw the initiation and development of a political and administrative system hitherto unknown to Indian history. Unlike the one-man rule of the Mughal emperors, the British established in territories under their direct control a regular and uniform system of administration composed of a hierarchy of authorities, one subordinate to another and with powers and functions clearly demarcated. The pattern commenced at the base with the districts and converged at the apex with provincial governors and the governor-general who were in turn subordinate to the authorities in England. Administration was impersonal since none of the officers was hereditary. Most of the company's officers at the senior level were imbued with a sense of their mission and brought to bear on the administration the principles and practice which obtained in their country. These are some of the factors which contributed to the building of a stable structure of the government. 
So far as the states were concerned, the influence of the company over their internal administration rapidly increased during the period following the retirement of Lord Hastings. Its residents became gradually transformed from diplomatic agents representing a foreign power into executive and controlling officers of a superior government. They assumed so much authority indeed that a certain Colonel Macaulay wrote to the Raja of Cochin. The resident will be glad to learn that on his arrival near Cochin, the Raja will find it convenient to wait on him. The pathetic plight of the rulers under the subsidiary system has been graphically described by Henry Mead, who, as a journalist, had spent over 20 years in India before the Great Revolt of 1857. What was written by Henry Mead, the journalist, I will be reading for you in my next episode. I have just started page 6 of Integration of the Indian State. Tune in to my next episode to read further. Stay with Sneha, tune in to Sneha, keep safe and take very good care of yourself.